please remain standing as Glenn comes to read to us this morning from 1 Kings chapter 4. Reading from 1 Kings 4, verses 29 to 34. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan, the Ezerhite, and Heman, Calco, and Dardath, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Somebody asked me this past week what happened at Genesis, and I just wanted to say that it was never intended that we would go all the way through it. At the pace that we were going, we would have been in Genesis for the next two or three years. Um, I do want to come back to Genesis. It may be a while before we do, but we'll take it in chunks. Um, we kind of finished off with chapter three, and when we do come back, we'll, fin we'll pick it up again in chapter four. Um, today, I want to begin a new series in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a book that's not often preached in our services, and when it is, we have a tendency to focus in on certain pieces that we find helpful or accessible. I've been to a lot of funerals that use the text from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there is a time for everything and a purpose for everything under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, and so forth. People read that one, and it's often preached, but that comes in a context. And if we see it outside of its context, then one of the things we do is just take kind of the good parts version of Ecclesiastes, those texts that we like. I know when I was in Bible college, um, it was the favorite verse of many people that two are better than one, because if one falls um, and is alone, you might have trouble getting back up, but two together, you know, one can help the other. And that was our whole rationale for finding girlfriends and boyfriends and things like that. You know, it's got a biblical justification. Two are better than one. And we do that not only with Ecclesiastes, but with other parts of the Bible as well, but especially here in a book that's complex, a book that comes in kind of a difficult space in the history of Israel. And so I hope that as we go through this together, the Spirit will give us insight into kind of the context and the reasons for some of the words that are here and that we will find them to be a blessing to us even now thousands of years later. We read 
in 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 32 to 35, King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon, and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And of course, there are many other stories that we could tell about Solomon. We all remember, at least those of us who grew up back when these things were not yet politically incorrect, the story about how two women were fighting over who was the real mother of a baby, and Solomon solved that in a unique and problematic for our day kind of way, saying, well, just cut the baby in half. <laughs> Give a half to both. And the real mother, of course, loved her baby more than she loved herself and said, no, 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 let, let her have it. Um, we hear stories of Solomon and the way that he dealt with the enemies of his father David in the immediate aftermath of David's death and Solomon becoming king. We hear stories of Solomon in all of these kind of nice settings, especially this one where Solomon had gone up to Gibeon to offer sacrifices to the Lord and God appeared to him at Gibeon and said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon replied to the Lord, give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. And we're told it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches, or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And that brings us to that text that Glenn read for us a bit earlier from 1 Kings chapter 4. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all of the people of the East and all of the wisdom of Egypt and the people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. As it said in 1 Kings 2 verse 12, so Solomon sat on the throne of David his father and his kingdom was firmly established. Now, all of this biographical information about Solomon is just to highlight the fact that he is 
or was the son of David who reigned in Jerusalem in his father's place and who was given wisdom and understanding beyond measure to such a degree that people, including kings and queens, came from nations around to hear him speak, to hear him preach, we might say, echoing the words of Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1, the words of the preacher, Kohelet, the speaker of the assembly, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. It's for this reason that the book of Ecclesiastes has traditionally been attributed to Solomon because he fits the profile perfectly. He was the son of David. Now that could be extended to any of David's direct descendants on down to Jesus Christ, who was also the son of David, but he reigned as king in Jerusalem, and that limits the field quite a bit. And when we look at those kings of Judah who reigned in Jerusalem, the ones who were actually displaying a little bit of wisdom and goodness and righteousness in their rule, they are few and far between. So we assume that when it says the words of the preacher, Kohelet, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, that this is talking about Solomon. Now, there are others who do not make that assumption. One commentary has it, if Solomon were the author, why did he not directly identify himself, as he does in Proverbs 1.1, where he wrote the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Instead, as we've read in Ecclesiastes 1, the words of the teacher, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Well, it may have something to do with the fact that when Solomon was gathering up the Proverbs, he was actually living a righteous life and didn't feel that applying his name to these things might actually take away from their credibility. By the end of his life, as we will see, that was not the case. Now, regardless, while the author may not have been Solomon, there is a point I want to make here. Solomon or not Solomon, the author was both the son of David, that is one of his direct descendants, and king in Jerusalem. Ruling out the thought expressed elsewhere that the Solomonic persona, that's, that's somebody else's words, not mine, I, I don't know how long you have to sit in your office to come up with a phrase like the Solomonic persona. But this commentator said the Solomonic persona is being adopted for literary and communicative purposes. In brief, the wise man who adopts the nickname Kohelet pretends to be Solomon, pretends to be Solomon, while he explores avenues of meaning in the world. That's a common enough interpretive device among liberal scholars who quite often look at the Bible and attribute texts from God's word to authors other than those who claim to have written them. People, in other words, who pretend to be Solomon or Isaiah or the Apostle Paul or just about any other book of the Bible that you can imagine. And these so-called scholars will say, well, there's a clear indication here that Paul wrote this epistle, or it seems highly likely 
given the circumstances of his life, that this book was written by Solomon. But we know it couldn't have been written when it was written. In Isaiah's case, there's a whole, they split Isaiah in half and say, this is first Isaiah, this is second Isaiah. Neither one of these were written by the Isaiah that we read about in the books of the Kings. But we know that this part of Isaiah had to be written much, much, much later. How do we know that? Well, because it's a prophecy about things that hadn't happened yet. And liberal scholars refuse to accept the possibility that a prophet speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and writing the word of God might actually have some insight into something that hadn't happened. And we all believe this to be true. We know the Christmas text where unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Well, that was written long before Jesus. But we say, well, Isaiah was given some insight into something that was going to happen so that he could speak prophetically to the world around him. Liberal scholars come along and say, well, it wasn't talking about Jesus when Isaiah or whoever first wrote it. It just fit nicely into the Jesus story. So, you know, his followers kind of adopted it. That's not the way that we understand the scriptures. If we believe that God was inspiring the scriptures in such a way that they would be authoritative and sufficient, they would be his God-breathed word. If we believe in the end, no prophecy, no scripture was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, then it follows that the scriptures were not written by people pretending to be other people. God is not the author of forgery. So we can say that Ecclesiastes may not have been written by Solomon, but it was certainly written by someone who was a direct descendant of David the king and who himself reigned as king in Jerusalem. As another commentary has it, without entering into a detailed description of the debate between scholars, there is no conclusive reason not to attribute the book to Solomon. So for the purposes of our study, that is in fact what we will be doing. Now there are in fact a lot of good reasons to attribute the book to Solomon. But when we're thinking in terms of good and evil, most of those reasons are not particularly good. Because Solomon, having been given a wise and discerning mind so that none like him had been before and none would arise after, seems to have sort of lived in that space for a little while and then proceeded almost immediately to debauch himself with what the canons of Dort refer to as serious and outrageous sins. We've read about the glory days of Solomon. Now consider the latter years of his life described in 1 Kings 11 verses 1 through 8. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, 
Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. So Solomon, sometimes we get asked, well, you know, what about Solomon with all those wives? We're coming to that part. Understand, that was a matter of disobedience on Solomon's part. He was being directly disobedient to the will and to the word of God. We don't hold him up as a role model for what Christian marriage should look like. Certainly not. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives did exactly what God said they would do. His wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives. Remember, he had 700 who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Now, if we want to give this a positive take, we might say, well, Solomon enabled the false and idolatrous worship of his 700 wives, but would not have participated in it himself. But please remember the nature of the sacrifices offered to Chemosh and Moab. Chemosh and Molech, sorry, were idols to which people sacrificed infant children by burning them alive making them to pass through the fire, as it was called in the Old Testament. So whether or not Solomon was ever physically present when his wives worshipped Chemosh and Molech, they were worshipping these demon gods with offspring that only Solomon could have produced because the king's harem was not open to other men. And of course, with a harem of a thousand women, there were probably a lot of unwanted children needing to be disposed of. So arguably, these high places spoken of in Kings were some of the earliest known Planned Parenthood clinics, where the products of conception could be offered up on the twin altars of convenience and prosperity. After all, we'll see a little later in chapter 1, Solomon said what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Since the fall of man, sinful people have always made provision to dispose 
of unwanted children. It was happening then, it was happening before that. It happened in Mesoamerica, and it happens now. Since the beginning of the world, sin has been crouching at the door, as God once said to Cain. And people have long sought to make coverings for their shame, literal and figurative. And where fig leaves and philosophies have proved inadequate, blood has never been far away. From the gas chambers of 1940s Europe to the killing fields of Cambodia to the abortion mills of our own world, which, by the way, have taken another 34 million children just this year. Worldwide, 2022, January 1 to October 16th. 34 million Babies, there is nothing new under the sun. And that's why this book still speaks to this very day, because it speaks into things that were cultural issues in the time, and they remain cultural issues today. As one author has written, the book demands careful consideration. Unlike the textual liberal, we should assume a single voice throughout the text. The Ecclesiastes were not written by multiple authors. Unlike the pietist, we should reject the temptation to accept the, quote, edifying passages and skim over the apparently difficult ones. And unlike the heretic, we should reject an elevation of the difficult text at the expense of the pervasive orthodoxy of the book. When we come back next week, we will consider the first words of the preacher the son of David, king in Jerusalem, where he says, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Well, there are translations, really one in particular, that say meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. And that is a bad translation of the Hebrew there. Solomon is not saying everything is meaningless. In fact, nothing is meaningless. Everything has meaning in the grand sovereign plan of God for his creation. All things must work together for our salvation, as the Heidelberg Catechism says. He's not saying meaningless. He's saying vanity of vanities. It's, it's empty. It's chasing after wind. And we'll look more into that as we go along. But some have taken that meaningless, meaningless, and said, well, here we find existentialism taught in the scriptures, nihilism even. Nothing has meaning. Well, trust me, everything does. And Solomon will make exactly that point as we go along. Solomon has spoken here. After a life spent looking for love and for wisdom too in all the wrong places, it seems like he returned to the Lord his God and then he called those who had not yet fallen victim. I believe he probably wrote this book for his sons. He called those who had not yet fallen victim, who were not yet pursuing vanity in the floodwaters of debauchery to heed the warning signs and stay away. I heard a comedian talking 
just the other day, and he claimed that in his locality in Southern California, they have these signs on the beach are about two feet by two feet, and the heading on the sign says tsunami evacuation route. According to him, what's below tsunami, tsunami evacuation route is just a big arrow pointing inland and uphill. Like, duh. <laughs> but I think Solomon would have understood. I think Solomon would have understood that when you're in that place where sin is just ready to completely overwhelm, it is time to just head for the hills, go inland and up, and get away from that flood. That's kind of what he said in chapter 12, verse 1, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. For those of you who are still in your youth, hear the words of this very wise man. Remember your creator now before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Solomon was speaking here, calling, I believe, his sons and grandsons and probably great-grandsons he ruled for about 40 years. Just don't walk the path that I walked. Remember your creator and hear his word. More importantly, God is speaking here because this book was inspired by the living God. And we know from Scripture that God, who loved Solomon, had called him and made him king and appeared to him when he was just a young man, gifting him with a wisdom that was beyond what the world has ever known. And that God did not forget his covenant with David or with Abraham or with Solomon himself. And so although Solomon dug deep into the garbage of what the world had to offer, God did not let him go. And as the days drew near when the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it for Solomon, God called him again, drawing him back in repentance and faith, reminding him of how far he had fallen, lifting him up, and inspiring him by the Holy Spirit to write this book so that Solomon's experience need not be ours. A long time ago, I preached at the memorial service of a man who, in his youth, had apparently loved and served the Lord. To the time of his death, some six decades or so later, people could still remember how he would go through the day doing his daily work, and he would lift up this beautiful baritone voice in praise, belting out those old Genevan Psalms from the Dutch Psalter. He's doing his work on the farm. People said you could hear him when he was out on the tractor, big open tractor with a steel seat, and he'd be out there pulling a plow, and you could stand at the fence row, and you could hear him singing the Psalms of Zion. Then something happened. I don't know 
what it was, and I wouldn't go into the details if I did. But something changed. He turned away from the Lord, and he became a sad and bitter man. His life was long, but it was sad. Right up to the day that he died, I sat with him in the hospital, and we prayed with him and read scripture with him. And praise the Lord, just a few hours before he passed, he repented. He died with huge expression of joy, just covering his face. All I could say afterwards, and I said this at his memorial service, was I've never seen any situation where a living person looked more like a mask just fell off. He had been so bitter, and in the moments before he died, he sat up, and there was glory in his eyes and on his face. So when I did his service, his wife had told me, don't you whitewash his life. Don't you get up there and talk about him like he was such a great Christian. You tell the truth. So I preached from Psalm 90, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And related that to his life and how wonderful it was that right at the end he came back to the Lord and he found joy. But what a waste of all those years, all those decades in between where he had wandered far from the Lord. I shared that and when the committal service was over, another man who was in much the same space came up and he asked me, do you think he's really with the Lord right now? And I smiled and replied, yes, I absolutely do because I truly do. But what struck me most was the man who had questioned me said, well then, maybe there's hope for me too. You know, if we take nothing else from the book of Ecclesiastes, I think this is the bottom line message. The world and all of its trifles are nothing more than vanity of vanities. All is vanity and vexation of spirit and chasing after wind. But God is good all the time. And Ecclesiastes reminds us that if we turn from the emptiness of the world to the living God, God and his grace will be found by those who come to him, trusting that in and through Jesus Christ. Every last promise is yes and amen. You may have heard it said before, God keeps his promises. He always has, he always will. He did for David, he did for Solomon, he will do so for us as we trust in him through faith in Christ. So may God give us ears to hear what his spirit is saying in these ancient words of wisdom, not just today, but throughout this series words that were written down for us by the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, after living a dissolute and reprobate life. If there was hope for him, then there is hope for all who will turn to God through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, his son, our savior.
Let's pray. Lord, in the words of the song, speak until your church is built and the world is filled with your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.